Chapter Fifteen, Part One of the Betrothed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lonnie Small. The Betrothed by Alessandro Manzoni. Chapter Fifteen, Part One. The landlord seeing the game was lasting too long and being carried too far, had approached Renzo, and with the greatest politeness requesting the others to leave him alone, began shaking him by the arm, and tried to make him understand, and persuade him that he had better go to bed. But Renzo could not forget the old subject of the name, and surname, and proclamations, and worthy youths. However, the words bed and sleep, repeated in his ear, wrought some kind of impression on his mind, they made him feel a little more distinctly his need of what they signified, and produced a momentary lucid interval. The little sense that returned to his mind made him in some degree sensible that most of his companions had gone, as the last glimmering torch in an illumination shows all the others extinguished. He made a resolution, placed his open hands upon the table, tried once or twice to raise himself, sighed, staggered, and at a third attempt supported by his host, he stood upon his feet. The landlord, steadying him as he walked along, guided him from between the bench and table, and taking a lamp in one hand, partly conducted and partly dragged him with the other toward the stairs. Here, Renzo, on hearing the noise and salutations which were shouted after him by the company, hastily turned around, and if his supporter had not been very alert and held him by the arm, the evolution would have ended in a heavy fall. However, he managed to turn back, and with his unconfined arm began figuring and describing in the air sundry salutes like a running knot. "'Let us go to bed, to bed,' said the landlord, pushing him forward through the door, and with still more difficulty drawing him to the top of the narrow wooden staircase, and then into the room he had prepared for him. Renzo rejoiced on seeing his bed ready, he looked graciously upon his host, with eyes which one moment glistened more than ever, and the next faded away like two fireflies. He endeavored to steady himself on his legs, and stretched out his hand towards his host's cheek to take it between his first and middle fingers, in token of friendship and gratitude, but he could not succeed. Brave landlord, he at last managed to stammer out, now I see that you are a worthy fellow. This is a kind deed to give a poor lad a bed. But that trick about the name and surname, that wasn't like a gentleman. By good luck, I saw through it. The landlord, who little thought he could have uttered anything so connected, and who knew by long experience how men in such a condition may be induced more easily than usual, suddenly to change their minds, was determined to take advantage of this lucid interval to make another attempt. "'My dear fellow,' said he, with a most coaxing tone and look, "'I didn't do it to vex you, nor to pry into your affairs. "'What would you have? "'There are the laws, and we must obey them. "'Otherwise we are the first to suffer the punishment. "'It is better to satisfy them. "'And after all, what is it all about? "'A great thing, certainly, to say two words. "'Not, however, for them, but to do me a favor. Here, between ourselves, face to face, let us do our business. Tell me your name, and then go to bed with a quiet mind. "'Oh, rascal!' exclaimed Renzo, 
cheat. You are again returning to the charge with that infamous name, surname business. Hold your tongue, simpleton, and go to bed, said the landlord. But Renzo pursued more vehemently. I understand you are one of the league. Wait, wait, and I'll settle it. And directing his voice toward the head of the stairs, he began to shout more vociferously than ever, Friends, the landlord is of the— I only said it in a joke, cried he, in Renzo's face, repulsing him, and pushing him toward the bed. In joke, didn't you understand that I only said it in joke? Ah, in joke. Now you speak sensibly. When you say in joke, they are just the things to make a joke of. And he sank upon the bed. Here, undress yourself and be quick, said the host, adding assistance to his advice. And there was need of it. When Renzo had succeeded in getting off his waistcoat, the landlord took it and put his hands in the pockets to see if there were any money in them. His search was successful, and thinking that his guest would have something else to do than to pay him on the morrow, and that this money would probably fall into hands once a landlord could not easily be able to recover any share, he resolved to risk another attempt. "'You're a good lad and an honest man, aren't you?' said he. "'Good lad and honest man,' replied Renzo vainly endeavouring to undo the buttons of the clothes which he had not yet been able to take off. "'Very well,' rejoined the host. "'Just settle, then, this little account for to-morrow. I must go out on some business.' "'That's only fair,' said Renzo. "'I'm a fool, but I'm honest. But the money, am, am I to go look for the money now?' "'It's here,' said the innkeeper, and calling up all his practice, patience, and skill, he succeeded in settling the account and securing the reckoning. "'Lend me a hand to finish undressing, landlord,' said Renzo. "'I'm beginning to feel very sleepy.' The landlord performed the required office. He then spread the quilt over him, and almost before he had time to say disdainfully, "'Good night,' Renzo was snoring fast asleep. Yet with that sort of attraction which sometimes induces us to contemplate an object of dislike, as well as of affection— and which perhaps is nothing else than a desire of knowing what operates so forcibly on our mind, he paused, for a moment, to contemplate so annoying a guest, holding the lamp towards his face, and throwing the light upon it with a strong reflection, by screening it with his hand, almost in the attitude in which Psyche is depicted, when stealthily regarding the features of her unknown consort. "'Mad blockhead,' said he, in his mind, to the poor sleeper. "'You've certainly taken the way to look for it.' "'Tomorrow you'll be able to tell me how you've liked it. "'Clowns who will stroll over the world without knowing whereabouts the sun rises, "'just to bring themselves and their neighbors into trouble.' "'So saying, or rather thinking, he withdrew the light and left the room, "'locking the door behind him. "'On the landing-place at the top of the stairs he called the landlady "'and bade her leave the children under the care of a young servant-girl "'and go down into the kitchen to preside and keep guard in his stead.' "'I must go out, thanks to a stranger who has arrived here to my misfortune,' said he, and he briefly related the annoying circumstance. He then added, "'Have your eyes everywhere, and above all be prudent this unfortunate day. There's a group of licentious fellows down below who, between drink and their own inclination, are ready enough to talk, and will say anything. It will be enough. If a rash—oh, I'm not a child, and I know well enough what's to be done.' I think you can't say that up to this time. Well, well, and be sure they pay, 
and pretend not to hear anything they say about the superintendent of provisions, and the governor, and Ferrer, and the de Curioni, and the cavaliers, and Spain, and France, and such fooleries, for if you contradict them, you'll come off badly directly, and if you agree with them, you may fare badly afterwards, and you know well enough that sometimes those who say the worst things. But enough. When you hear certain things, turn away your head and cry, I'm coming, as if somebody was calling you from the other side. I'll come back as quick as I can. So saying, he went down with her into the kitchen, gave a glance around to see if there were anything new of consequence, took down his hat and cloak from a peg, reached a short, thick stick out of the corner, summed up in one glance at his wife the instructions he had given her, and went out. But during these preparations he had again resumed the thread of the apostrophe begun at Renzo's bedside, and continued it even while proceeding on his walk. Obstinate fellow of a mountaineer! For however Renzo was determined to conceal his condition, this qualification had betrayed itself in his words, pronunciation, appearance, and actions. Such a day as this, by good policy and judgment, I thought to have come off clear, and you must just come in at the end of it to spoil the egg and the hatching. Were there no other inns in Milan that you must just light upon mine? Would that you had even lit upon it alone! I would then have shut my eyes to it to-night, and to-morrow morning would have given you a hint. But, my good sir, no! You must come in the company, and to do better still, in a company with a sheriff. At every step the innkeeper met either with solitary passengers, or persons in groups of three or four whispering together. At this stage of his mute soliloquy he saw a patrol of soldiers approaching, and going a little aside peeped at them from under the corner of his eye as they passed, and continued to himself, "'There go the full chastisers, and you, great ass, because you saw a few people rambling about and making a noise, it must even come into your brain that the world is turning upside down. And on this fine foundation you have ruined yourself, and are trying to ruin me too. This isn't fair. I did my best to save you, and you, you fool, in return, have very nearly made a disturbance in my inn. Now you must go and get yourself out of this scrape, and I will look to my own business. As if I wanted to know your name out of curiosity, what does it matter to me whether it be Thaddeus or Bartholomew? A mighty desire I have to take the pen in hand, but you are not the only people who would have things all their own way. I know as well as you that there are proclamations which go for nothing, a fine novelty, that a mountaineer should come to tell me that. But you don't know that proclamations against landlords are good for something and you pretend to travel over the land and speak, and don't know that if one would have his own way and carry the proclamations in one's pocket, the first thing requisite is not to speak against them in public. And for a poor innkeeper, who was of your opinion, and didn't ask the name of any one who happens to favor him with his company, do you know, you fool, what good things are in store for him? Under pain of three hundred crowns to any one of the aforesaid landlords, tavern-keepers, and others as above. There are three hundred crowns hatched, and now to spend them well, to be applied two-thirds to the royal chamber, and the other third to the accuser or informer. What a fine bait! And in case of inability, five years in the galleys, and greater punishment pecuniary or corporal, 
at the will of his excellency, much obliged for all his favors. At these words the landlord reached the door of the court of the high sheriff. Here, as at all other secretaries' offices, much business was going forward. Everywhere they were engaged in giving such orders as seemed most likely to preoccupy the following day, to take away every pretext for discontent, to overcome the boldness of those who were anxious for fresh tumults, and to confirm power in the hands of those accustomed to exercise it. The soldiery round the house of the superintendent were increased, and the ends of the street were blockaded with timber and barricaded with carts. They commanded all the bakers to make bread without intermission, and dispatched couriers to the surrounding country with orders to send corn into the city, while noblemen were stationed at every bakehouse, who repaired thither early in the morning to superintend the distribution, and to restrain the factious by fair words and the authority of their presence. But to give, as the saying is, one blow to the hoop and another to the cask, and to render their cajolings more efficient by a little all, they thought also of taking measures to see some one of the seditious, and this was principally the business of the high sheriff, whose temper toward the insurrection and the insurgents the reader may imagine, when he is informed of the vegetable fomentation which it was found necessary to apply to one of the organs of his metaphysical profundity. His bloodhounds had been in the field from the beginning of the riot, and this self-styled Ambrosio Fusella was, as the landlord said, a disguised under-sheriff, sent about for the express purpose of catching in the act some one whom he could again recognize, whose motions he could watch, and whom he could keep in mind, so as to seize either in the quiet of the evening or next morning. He had not heard four words of Renzo's harangue before he had fixed upon him as a capital object, exactly his man. Finding afterward that he was just fresh from the country, he had attempted the master-stroke of conducting him at once to the prison, as the safest inn in the city, but here he failed, as we have related. He could, however, bring back certain information of his name, surname, and country, besides a hundred other fine conjectural pieces of information, so that when the innkeeper arrived here to tell what he knew of Renzo, they were already better acquainted with him than he. He entered the usual apartment, and deposed that a stranger had arrived at his house to lodge, who could not be persuaded to declare his name. "'You've done your duty in giving us this information,' said a criminal notary, laying down his pen. "'But we know it already.' "'A strange mystery,' thought the host. "'They must be wonderfully clever.' "'And we know, too,' continued the notary, "'this revered name.' "'The name, too? How have they managed it?' thought the landlord again. "'But you,' resumed the other with a serious face, "'you don't tell all candidly. "'What more have I to say?' "'Aha! "'We know very well that this fellow brought to your inn "'a quantity of stolen bread, plundered, "'acquired by robbery and sedition. "'A man comes with one loaf in his pocket. "'Do you think I know where he went to get it? "'For to speak as on my deathbed, "'I can positively affirm that I saw but one loaf. "'There!' always excusing and defending yourself. One would think to hear you everybody was honest. How can you prove this bread was fairly obtained? Why am I to prove it? I don't meddle with it. I'm an innkeeper. You cannot, however, deny that this customer of yours had the temerity to utter injurious words against the proclamations, and to make improper and shameful jokes on the arms of His Excellency? Pardon me, sir, 
How can he be called my customer, when this is the first time I've ever seen him? It was the devil under your favor that sent him to my house, and if I had known him, you, sir, know well enough I should have had no occasion to ask his name. Well, in your inn, in your presence, inflammatory speeches have been uttered, unadvised words, seditious propositions, murmurs, grumbles, outcries. How can you expect, my good sir, that I should attend to the extravagances which so many noisy fellows talking all at the same time may chance to utter? I must attend to my interest, for I am only badly off. And besides, your worship knows well enough that those who are lavish of their tongues are generally ready with their fists, too, particularly when there are so many together, and, aye, aye, leave them alone to talk and fight. Tomorrow you'll see if their tricks have gone out of their heads. What do you think? I think nothing about it. That the mob will have got the upper hand in Milan? Oh, just so. We shall see, we shall see. I understand very well. The king will always be king, and he that is fined will be fined. But the poor father of a family naturally wishes to escape. Your honors have the power, and it belongs to you. Have you many people still in your house? A world of them. And this customer of yours, what is he doing? Does he still continue to be clamorous, to excite the people and arouse sedition? That stranger, your worship means? He's gone to bed. Then you've many people. Well, take care not to let them go away. Am I to be constable? thought the landlord, without replying either negatively or affirmatively. Go home again and be careful, resumed the notary. I've always been careful. Your honor can say whether I have ever made any opposition to justice. Well, well, and don't think that justice has lost its power. I, for heaven's sakes, I think nothing. I only attend to my business. The old song, you never anything else to say. What else would your worship have me say? Truth is but one. Well, we will remember what you have deposed. If the case comes on, you will have to give more particular information to justice about whatever they may choose to ask you. What can I depose further? I know nothing. I have scarcely had enough to attend to my own business. Take care you don't let him go. I hope that his worship, the high sheriff, will be informed that I came immediately to discharge my duty, your honor's humble servant. End of chapter 15, part 1